0: Welcome to Season 1 of Reclaiming Jesus Now.
1: Ten conversations with Jim Wallace, exploring the themes of his new book, Christ in Crisis.
0: We're your hosts. I'm William Matthews.
1: And I'm Allison Trowbridge.
0: This is the third of ten weekly episodes. Today, we're talking about Chapter 3. The image question.
1: Jim, what does it mean for us to be image bearers of God?
2: It means to go back to the beginning. Here, here's what Genesis, first chapter, first book in the Bible, says. You know, with all this noise we hear all the time about race and racism and all of the poison in the air, like you, sometimes i, I just I just can't keep listening to it. So sometimes I just turn it all off, And I go to this text and just quietly say to myself the first three words, which are, Then God said, all the noise, all the ugly, poisonous talk about the sin of whiteness. But then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to, to our likeness, and let them have dominion, the better word, their stewardship, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then it says in John, in the beginning was the word. The word is Jesus. It says the word was with God, and the word was God in the beginning. So interesting, it says, let us create humankind in our image. Jesus was there at the beginning. And so our purpose was to share stewardship. It says that. Let them have stewardship over the whole creation together. So when one people decide to have dominion, not just over the creation but over the other peoples, dominion over the other peoples, that is an assault on the Creator. That is overturning the purpose of God. So when I talk about America's original sin, this isn't a discussion of how the Republicans should do better with racism than they do and how Democrats ought to do better than they do too. This is about how America's original sin, you know Imago Dei, that word, Latin, image of God, how America's original sin threw away Imago Dei. Mm. Just threw it away. This wasn't just slavery. There were lots of slaveries, indentured servanthood and all that. The Greeks, slaves, tutored the Roman elite kids. No one said they weren't human or less than human. Our racializing of slavery was unique. For British and American Christians, it was us. Because you can't do to indigenous people and kidnapped Africans. What we were doing to them, if they were people made in the image of God, so let's just say they weren't. That's what we did. We put it in the Constitution
1: three fifths. Yeah.
2: So, those who think this is somehow just old history. Yeah. am so mm-hmm. one night I was in the streets of Ferguson, and this young black man next to me was just. Wailing, and here's what he said I still feel like I'm treated like three fifths of a person on the streets of Mm. Ferguson. It's existential to him. So, um, Brian Stevenson says slavery never ended, it just evolved. So, mass incarceration today and criminal justice policing, being so racialized, uh, everything is throwing away the image of God. So in a religious leaders conference, uh, we went in small groups and Barbara Williams Skinner and I are in a small group. We're supposed to come up with a principle and then a concrete action goal. The principle, our small group came up with was the image of God. <laughs> We're all made in the image of God. Principle, fact, action. That means every vote that is suppressed, every vote that is suppressed, is an assault on the image of God. Absolutely, it isn't just a partisan question. This is an assault. Uh, so we came up with a Christian campaign against voter suppression. We call lawyers and collars. We're in all kinds of states now. Collars, clergy going in with lawyers to make sure votes aren't taken away because these are votes of black people that are being taken away with, use the court's language in North Carolina, with surgical precision yep. to take away the votes of black people. Now this is throwing away Imago Day. So let's talk about what this is, which is an assault on the image of God.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with you. I've done anti-voter suppression campaigns Mm -hmm. as well, and there's something core about it, just even from my own personal history and lineage of knowing that when my parents were born, they did not have legally the protections to vote, uh, especially in the the South. And so to not be able to vote or to put a poll tax or something to hinder folks from voting is telling them they don't count as a citizen, which means they're not a full human being. Um, But taking it back one step, you – In this chapter in the book, you describe racism, and you use this definition, which I love. You said human beings tend characteristically towards prejudice, wanting to sort things out by our tribes that can be based on history, geography, families, territory, culture, and almost always skin color. But racism is prejudice with power. Racism is prejudice made into a system to benefit, divide, and oppress, and that's what we did in America. And with our racism based on the lie, myth, ideology, and idolatry against God, which is white supremacy, it was a sin. You you seem to be very clear, which a lot of people in culture don't always seem to be clear on what racism actually is, how it disassociates people from the image of God. And then lastly, what we can do to begin to Name it. Like you're actually in this book, I feel like you're naming racism in a way that I don't think people talk about. What has been your journey in getting to that place? because that's not an
2: easy thing to do. A friend of mine once told me, we were doing a diversity week at some university, as you know, they all like to have. and he he's a black professor, and we both teach universities, and he said, so I always ask my white students if they've ever heard racism named, denounced as a sin from their pulpits in their churches. And the white students always say, no, never never have. It's not named. Therefore, if it isn't acknowledged or named, uh, you can't repent of a sin that hasn't been named. Hmm. And repentance in... Christianity, Judaism, and Islam doesn't mean feeling guilty or sorry. That's too easy. It means turning around and going in a whole new direction. That's what the word means, metanoia, turn around. So you don't name it, you can't repent of it. And so um, naming the sin, I think, is just the beginning of all of this. I was asked recently, and this isn't in the book, but I have this experience all the time, to go and speak to all the heads of denominations Uh on racism. And they're all in a circle, small group, black, white, Hispanic, but mostly white because most of our denominations in the mainline churches and so on are headed by white men. And they're all for all the good stuff, you know, (laughs) They, they say. So I walked around and I said, okay, we've talked about how how racism is is a myth that when white people came to America they weren't white people until they came to America. They were Irish and Swedish and Mm. Italian and German and they don't ever acknowledge that. So Okay that's a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) So I often say to when I used to do anti racism workshops to white folks, I'd say, Now, you know, you Italians, you're just like the Germans. I just can't tell you apart. <laughs> and they all laugh just like that, or That's you good. uh or you're uh, you're you're Irish, you're just like the Swedish I can never <laughs> tell you and they laugh, I so well, you must be the same because when you got to America, you all became white people mm. wow. we created this thing, we yeah. invented it, uh this whole idea of whiteness yeah it's not an ethnicity, yeah, it's something we created, and to say that no matter what you'll always be better off than those people of color. That's the promise we make to white people. So even white people being marginalized or feeling left out, they're at least supposed to be treated better, they've been promised, Hmm. than people of color. So I went around to these church leaders and I said, Okay, racism is a myth, right? And they said, Yeah, yeah I said that means that means if you believe in the myth, you're living a lie. Right? They said, yeah. So what does it mean that all of your white parishioners are living a lie? Is that good for you? Pastorly for your people to live a lie? It's an ideology. Yeah. Why did we say these kidnapped Africans weren't, weren't human beings? Because getting free labor on stolen land was the best way to build the American economy. Mm. And that's what we had over all kinds of other countries. Wasn't just our resources, our rivers and mountains. It was land that we just took and labor that we got for free. That was a pretty big asset. So that was greed. The ideology was
0: for greed. Can we just take a moment though to just sit on that? Because I feel like that's the same argument being made right now. It's the same connection to the beginning and the origins of this country. So
2: there may be someone in the White House who is preaching something that assaults Genesis chapter 1. But if he says he's doing well for the economy, even if they believe that, is it okay to defy the image of God? So because of the economy, we did this. So, So your people, I said, are ideologically captive to something that is based on greed. Mm. So it's an ideology. But it's deeper. It's also an idol, whiteness. Whiteness, the normality of whiteness, the standard of whiteness, of what is successful and beautiful. If you're young, young girls looking in the mirror, what's beautiful and the normativeness of whiteness, the assumption of whiteness, that we assume whiteness and everything else, even other kinds of theology, liberation theology, is extracurricular. Theology is Western and European. It's an idol. And, and remember, these are heads of churches. Tell me what idols do. Mm. They said, they separate you from God. Okay. So our people are living a lie on the basis of the ideology of greed and they're captured by the idol of whiteness, and that idol separates them from God. Isn't there a pastoral issue here? A lot of white liberal progressives think that racism is about the problems minorities have because of our history, and they're really eager and ready to help as liberal white progressives and to uh, use their influence to make the lives of minority people better. That's not a biblical understanding of racism as throwing away the image of God, our original sin from which we need to repent. And repentance, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you and your family are guilty of everything that's happened to people of color But it means if you benefit
1: from this sin,
2: you are responsible for changing it. To benefit from oppression means you're responsible for changing it.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that there is a sense of, of repentance that needs to happen on a systemic level. Like any white person in America has been a beneficiary of white privilege and of this history of racism. And I think there's such a... We have such, it's funny, I was thinking about it last night. We have such this fear or almost this idea of what it means to be a racist is this extreme example of a person who looks like, you know, is dressed like a Nazi. They're a racist. But, you know, me as an average person living my daily life, I'm not racist. And so there's, we don't call things out in small ways that are are racist or said in ways that are racist because we've created such a big ideal of what that word is and what it means. And I think it's caused us to be blind to prejudice and racism that happens all around us all the time.
0: But isn't that though, so ironic or so beneficial that the idol hides itself? Mm. It's like, that type of revisionist narrative, even about yeah. like what is racist, what isn't racist, based on an understanding of what happened either 200 years ago or the 60s or the stories that we've even told about recent memory, are also, it's not coincidence that <laughs> it, yeah. it hides the idol. Yeah. Right. Such a and good point. it makes me, I'm the good person. And well, I'm not a Klans member. Yeah. I'm not a b- burning a cross. So therefore, I'm not racist. And yeah. the, even the way we've told those stories to like assuage. The, our guilt collectively, I think, is is a, a fruit of like what you're saying. So that way I feel okay in the present and I feel like I'm a good person right. without having to own my complicity in a, in a system. And truthfully, I think that's what Trump is getting at when, with these whole like send her back comments mm. is because these particularly four congresswomen of color are pointing at the systemic issues of racism. And he's saying, well, they hate America just by simply naming white supremacy. They hate America by simply pointing to the like basically the idol of the the revisionist history, like the narrative that they have painted about America. Yeah. That feels to me like what kind of what you're saying like he's challenging and then it makes them complicit. Oh, I'm not a good person? Oh, well actually no you're not send her back.
1: Yeah. Like yeah. I feel like
0: that's kind of the tension we're in.
1: Well there's there's a line that you use in the book Jim saying that we we now have the president of white backlash. And, and holding this up in the context of we are a multiracial, multicultural country and becoming ever more so every year. And this deep underlying fear from those who have for so many generations benefited from, from uh the the history of white supremacy in this country there's i think fear that that as a culture we've not been able to name and that trump is just so immediately tapped into and and capitalized on those on those fears of that where our future as a country is going
2: so we want to say as you're both pointing out well we're not like those people in charlottesville
1: yeah you
2: know or that mother emmanuel church thing that happened in charlotte That was such a horrible thing. Right across the street from Mother Emanuel is a Confederate statue. And so every black kid has to pass that every day going into Mother Emanuel. And to send her back, we saw this chant echoing a tweet from the President of the United States. And I remember watching that, and I watched a little girl with her parents. They all brought their kids to the rally in North Carolina in a black part of— North Carolina, Greenville, right? And it was all white crowd. They were a little girl and she's watching all these, her parents and others chanting this, send her back, send her back at Congresswoman Omar. And then she, as a kid, just began to do what her parents were doing. Send her back, send her back, send her back. This is in fact systemic drug use for blacks and whites is absolutely equal. But incarceration is overwhelmingly black and brown. So the drug war was used for mass incarceration rates that we've never seen before. Or felons can't vote in Florida. 4.2 million former felons in Florida couldn't vote in the last election. Do you think the results would have been different for a black governor in Florida? If that hadn't been the case, it makes
1: my blood boil.
2: Or gerrymandering. Take every state and find your congressional district, put it on a map. It bears no relationship to geography or urban, rural. They are jagged, completely illogical, incoherent drawings of a congressional district to maintain white control in those state and national legislatures, or voting voter suppression. Clearly, Stacey Abrams would have won in Georgia Mm. without systemic voter suppression run by her opponent for governor, who was a Secretary of State. So Mm. these things aren't just political issues. This is about the image of God. For us, the image of God is the foundation for our notions of human rights human dignity, even citizenship. This is about the image of God. And until we get to it at that level of this is throwing away the image of God, every time we do these things to maintain this system, Jamal doesn't get called back for a job when Harry does, or if they have interviews, even all the stats show this. So, so what does it mean when our schools are still mostly segregated, So this is for us a theological issue. It's not just a political issue. It's the foundation of everything else. And so how we treat people in a society is a moral decision. It's a public policy decision based on moral foundations. So until we get down to the beginning here, <laughs> uh, in the beginning was the word, and Genesis says, let us create humankind in our image. So this is a fundamental issue of obedience to God in our acceptance of all of these systemic, structural realities which are known to every person of color from their daily experience every day. And a lot of us white folks just don't see it, or as you said, uh, and quietly benefit from it and see racism as somebody else's problem that's heavy (laughs) that's all i can really say about like that's
0: that's heavy you said theology means very little without direct practical applications what would be some practical applications for a theology that is anti-racist you said that word earlier which i'm i'm using it or thinking about it primarily in the way that dr ibram Kendi uses it you know he talks about there's three camps when it comes to the race issue it's uh segregationist, assimilationalist, and anti-racist. We think of it as a binary, like they're racist, they're not racist. And he's like, no, it's actually
2: three categories. Do you prescribe anti-racism as a antidote? When Trayvon Martin was killed, I looked at my son Luke, almost the same age as Trayvon. And I knew, and the whole country knew, if we're honest, that if my son Luke, wearing a hoodie or not, had done the very same things Trayvon was doing that night in Sanford, Florida, um and Trayvon didn't come back to his parents and Luke would have been fine. or my son my younger son, we were over in England once because his mom's a Brit, and the story came, came over and and the young young man who was killed in Cleveland at a park I've been to, the cop wasn't prosecuted same age as Jack. We got to England Jack. Was said, told by all the people, hey, "You're so big, Jack. Twelve years old. Look, five foot nine. You're big. Wow, you look so strong, good looking, and healthy." And they didn't prosecute the cop who, in nine seconds after he arrived, shot this kid in the park, black kid, because he said, "Well, I okay. He was only twelve, but he looked bigger. He was five foot nine. He was big. He was a big, strong kid." When you're clear that this happened to these kids just because of their their skin color, police violence, racialized police violence, why is this just some issue you're indifferent to or like to learn more about? Practically, if you had white megachurches going to see every police chief in the country with black church leaders alongside them under their leadership, saying to every police chief in the country, we want to help you with good community policing that respects everyone's rights. But you know, we're watching you. I've had black leaders to tell me, if white pastors went with us to see those police chiefs, it would save so many lives wow. of black kids. Or let's take the voter suppression issue. Uh, secretaries of state, part of our plan now, lawyers and callers, is going to see secretaries of state and say, we all want uh, every citizen to be able to vote as easily as possible, right? Let's really work on doing that. And let me also tell you, we're watching. Clergy are watching. We'll be watching all the way through the election. Hear what I'm saying? Oh, I hear you. I'm saying yeah. And if they hear, <laughs> I know they hear me, I want the Secretaries of the State to hear those clergy and those police chiefs. Practically that wouldn't be hard to do. Yeah. That's practical and those two things would make a difference in the lives and the votes of people of color.
0: I, I love that. It it is also sad to me to it just goes to show you the power and privilege of that white people carry. Yeah. Especially white people with money carry that it's like an, that shouldn't have to be necessary. A black church leader should be able to go yes, to the police chief right, and right. just say our lives matter right. to you and it'd be taken seriously. Right. But we often in our communities don't have the, the, and the for very intentional reasons do not often have the economic means by which to put. Our authority and our weight into something. So they look at us and they're yeah. like, Y'all y- 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 ain't gonna do nothing. Yeah. Y'all really can't. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, y- y- you don't got no, the I money. Know what you're saying. Yeah. They're like, y- y- That's nice. That's whatever. Thank you for coming. But y- you don't matter. Like, like the- th- what you said, if the mega church pastor comes, they know they're pulling in X amount of money. They know they've got be- donors and tithers and they're connected to people yeah. behind closed doors. Yeah. They're influencing mm-hmm. policy decisions behind, like, there's a-, a level of respect that is given to white people, but particularly white people that are influential in the business world and in the church world that I think people of color that can be just as profound, prolific, anointed speaking, writing, you know what I'm saying? Like, or community leaders that people love and respect, but just, they won't get the sit down. Yeah. They
2: won't get that respect. And if you have a lot of influence, uh, as a black professional, Economically, uh, politically, you have wealth and power in your profession. It still doesn't keep your kids safe. It doesn't. So in my class at Georgetown called Faith, Race, and Politics, we have a day called the Policing Day. I have all the students tell their stories, theirs and their family stories of policing. Got to wait until halfway through the class because it's traumatic to ask people of color to tell their policing stories again. Trust has to be established. So every single time we do this, I can always predict who's going to say what. So one time, this young woman from Sidwell Friends, where Obama's girls went to school, the elite Quaker school in DC, she's white. She told about her, her two best friends and one's African-American and uh, the other's uh, white. uh, And they were dating. And they were walking around Washington and an officer came up to them, police officer, not Alabama, not Mississippi, Washington, D.C., looked at the white woman, young schoolgirl, and said, ma'am, are you okay? Wow. Are you okay? She wow. says, yeah, I'm, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm fine. What, what do you mean? You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Looks at her friend and scowls and says, you on substances. He says, no, no. You carrying substances? He says, no, on the ground. Puts him on the ground uh, and begins to search him. The girl calls his mom, who's a top lawyer in D.C., black woman, top lawyer in D.C., who tells the girl what to say to her son because she's terrified of what's going to happen to her son. Oh, my God. And so he's clean. The cop says, you're lucky this time. Never checks her purse in which there is a bag of marijuana. Mm. This is every day. This is every day in this country, which all black parents know, and most white parents don't. So this is about whether we believe in the opening chapter of Genesis. and the opening chapter of John, which says... Christ was there at the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning here and talk about what these issues really are about, whether we're we're defying, throwing away, imago Dei, the image of God.
1: The thing I'm always struck by is the, and William and I have talked about this a little bit, but is the idea of revisionist history that we have even in the church on many of these issues. I think there was this idea that we were some sort of post-racial society. Yeah. And, and even looking at how it, at every turn, the Bible and Christianity was used to justify systemic racism, to justify slavery, to justify all kinds of horrific abuses. And then shortly after civil rights happens, and it's like, oh, well, we were always for for that. I mean, you read the letters that the church wrote to MLK standing against him and against his work, the white bishops saying, stand down. And, and I just, I think we are so quick to forget. And, and I just wonder 10, 20 years from now, we're going to forget the church saying nothing in so many of these, these racialized conversations and, and, not standing up against oh my the administration. God.
0: You know these people are going to be the same ones in 10, 15 years black. We we stood against Trump. We were not we did not like what he was doing. Exactly. No, exactly.
1: <laughs> like, exactly. How, and how does that make you feel as a person of color listening to the president of your country make these these racist comments?
0: I'm just, I feel like feel the same way that story that Jim told about the man who who said because I can't vote like I don't feel like a human like I don't feel like a man like I know I know I I know I ain't shit to y'all like I know that like I can I can look on television and see that I can see it I can see it in the institutions I can see it in public education like we ain't shit to y'all. Like y'all don't care about us. And this administration don't care about us. They don't love us. They're not for us. That's the only thing I got. And that's that's guttural. It's like you don't even have to say send her back. I can feel send her back. I can feel that in my chest when, when, when certain policies are rolled out in a certain way. It's all coded and it's all like guttural and it's all like that racism is so embedded that it's like, you don't have to say nigger because I can feel that. That cop never had to say that word to that boy that he put on the ground. But I'm going to treat you like a nigger because you ain't shit. You a nigger. And that, that is what people feel, people of color feel on a guttural level that is so enraging that I can do my best to make it in very eloquent words. I can channel my rage in very productive ways because that's the only maybe power I remotely have. But at the end of the day, I know this, ain't, this stuff ain't for me. Doesn't mean I can't try to take it because <laughs> it is, right? Like like when Kamala Harris goes, if, if those segregationists would have had their way I would not be a U.S. senator. Like, it's that, like, it's that. And that's what we're playing with, or, or even remotely teasing or toying with, is that feeling of like, if y'all really had your way, I don't think y'all would want us here. You've already used us as best as you can. Now you're just trying to figure out a way to discard us. And I think that's what people of color feel towards white people. And that's what they see, and that's what they sense, and that's what they feel, and every level, whether public policy, urban housing, or, or the economy conversation, or the healthcare conversation, or the all of it. And we're remotely just trying to take some measure of
2: power back in that. So when you talk this way, you pause first. Can I really share my heart here? And is this okay? And because you're not sure whether you can say this in, in an atmosphere, whether we trust the places we say things Even young black men who are in multicultural churches, genuinely multicultural, multiracial churches, often say to me how lonely they feel on Sundays after a week of an incident, a shooting incident of a black man. They feel lonely in a multiracial church because they really can't say what they feel they really can't wail and scream and yell and speak their hearts like they could in a black church. Every black church on a Sunday after a shooting is so different than white churches, where it maybe is a prayer request after Thailand. So what it means to feel like you're not wanted, it came out one day I was headed to the Grand Rapids, Michigan, very white city, to the MLK annual celebration. And on that day is the day that President Trump used the term S Hull countries which you raised before. New York Times had a piece about how African Americans were leaving white churches and leaving multiracial churches in droves since the election because they felt betrayed by white Christians. Yeah, who were silent and weren't speaking up. And we're going back to the safety of their black churches again. This is where, unless we are willing to hear each other's hearts and deepest feelings, which, you know, I'd like to say what you just said is unique yeah. <laughs> or unusual or not widespread, but this is how people feel people of color feel in this country when he said on that day president trump said we want more immigrants from norway yeah not from asshole countries so how do black people feel other than america is for white people has a preference for white people in just words it's policies that show a preference for white people When you feel like you've been here your whole life and you don't feel like the country is not for you, since the tweet, we've heard many people of color say, as little kids, they heard from their playground mates or from teachers, go back to where you came from. So this is about our solidarity with each other as the children of God, all made in the image of God, or not. Yeah. We believe that or we don't. don't. But if we do, we have to act on what we say we believe. I always think of it
0: like the New Jerusalem thing. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Either we're going to be it, we're going to represent it, we're going to see it, we're going to act it out, or we're, or like you said, or we're not but I think we've reached a tipping point where it's like, I'm not going to sit in your church and play like multiracial games, (laughs) you know, and pretend like we're all unity and unified, but I I know what you really believe. I know how you really live. And I, it feels that's the crisis, but that's also the opportunity as well is, are you going to see my image? Are you going to see my wholeness? Are you going to respect that or not? That's the moment I feel like we're in. And if you're not, I don't know what that's going to look like because I think whatever's going on right now is untenable. It is, mm-hmm. It cannot stand. And uh, it's. Uh, you said this on our call, Jim. You you said it's a cold war that that can get hot really quick. And there's only so much you can keep dehumanizing folks and keep talking about them and keep uh, uh, pushing them down before they, they just have enough. And we've seen this in our history as well, too. I mean, Ferguson was that type of uprising, too, of like, we just, we're done.
2: Eddie Claude is the one who's now saying we're in the middle of a cold civil war, and it could get hot very soon. It probably will in some ways. I don't think white Americans have yet to make the choice that we are willing to live in a multiracial democracy. Because every time there's progress in that direction, forming, as they say, a more perfect union, there's always a doubling down. Reconstruction after slavery was... Working. Working. Former slaves were in the Congress, in the Senate, governors of their states. North Carolina had all three. Because it was working, it was ended by white politicians in the North and the South to end and create Jim Crow. And then Michelle Alexander reminds us of a new doubling down the new Jim Crow in relation to criminal justice, and Brian Stevenson. And so now we have our first black president last time. We say, as you just said, we're in, a, we're in a, a post-racial society. They wanted us all to believe, which was never true. So here comes a new candidate, starts his political career by using the, the racial conspiracy of birtherism against our first black president comes down the escalator and, first of all, demonizes immigrants, which strongmen do all over the world as the basis for his campaign. That's when I predicted he would win the Republican nomination Hmm. and turn what was implicit always into the explicit, criticizing Mexican judges, black athletes, uh, all Muslims, on and on and on taking what's always been implicit making it very explicit the overt to the covert and still finding mostly white christian silence
1: and support more than silence support
2: and it's silence and you're right support defending this and saying not nothing what does this say about brothers and sisters in christ what this is a i call this a corinthians problem meaning Corinthians says, When other parts of the body of Christ suffer, you suffer with them. The black body of Christ, the Hispanic body of Christ in this country is suffering. Yeah. And white Christians don't even know or acknowledge the suffering in too many cases. Therefore, we are disobeying Corinthians. We're not suffering with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are people of color. We're not suffering with them. Therefore, we are disobeying Corinthians. We're disobeying Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. This is a biblical issue. This is a theological issue. And Tanahasi Coates is really challenging whether, in fact, this will ever be a multiracial democracy. And maybe all he can do is protect his own son, in his book or his own kids. Those of us who wanted to to be more have got to say we've got to double down here on what we say are our ideals and what we say the Bible teaches and decide whether or not we're going to ever become that multiracial democracy that we say we believe in. The choice has still not been made by white people and white Christians about whether we're going to commit to that or not.
1: And I would actually take that question to both of you. Um, For someone who is white and listening to this show, what does it look like in the context of a, a very racist administration and leadership in our country? What does it look like to engage this issue? Because I think for many white people, there's almost a fear around engaging it of if I engage it, then it's real and I have to in some way come to terms with it.
0: I, I know for me, the most encouraged I feel is when folks are open and honest about where they're at, but also about who they love. I think one of the best things folks can do and, and you don't have to be a, a, of an opposite ethnicity to do this. Like we, you know, black and brown people encourage each other all the time. <laughs> I see you. Yeah. It's like if I walk down the street and I see another black guy, I'm more prone to nod at him. I try mm-hmm. to do that in general. But like, you know, most people just don't, you know, look at you and you know, everyone's, especially we're in New York City right now. <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: pushes you out but like,
0: like, yeah, but there's this thing like I, I acknowledge you, meaning I see I don't know you, yeah. but I guarantee you we've had similar struggles in life because of simply how we look. So I think acknowledging when that stuff happens, like when the cinderback back thing happens going, Hey, I had a friend, uh, a, a white Christian worship leader guy. That's kind of well-known in that world, you know, say he's from North Carolina and he very much publicly tweeted like, that does not represent how I see you. I want all my friends of color to know that I see you. I love mm-hmm. you. I'm here for you. And, Uh, I don't want you to be anywhere other than here, like, you know, in a nutshell, like what they said. we talked earlier about the power of showing up in spaces, whether you are leveraging your power and privilege to show up to to have that meeting with the police chief with supporting your, your, your brothers and sisters of color. Whether that's showing up, however you need to show up to show that you love and you care, show up. Don't be quiet. Show up. And if you mess up in that process, you're still loved. Keep showing up. If you don't say the right thing, that's all right. It's not even about saying the right thing. It's about the attempt to show up, to stand for people, to openly encourage, and also to push back on
2: all that stuff. I think that's real practical.
1: What do you think, Jim?
2: You know why Obama won? Hmm. So he's a first friend, I rather, that became president. He won because of two things. One is a black man won the Iowa primary. Black voters are very pragmatic. Black women especially. And sure, they loved him, liked him. He was so smart. He was so amazing. He saw all that stuff, why they love Obama. But he won a primary in a white state because young white voters came out and voted for him. Young voters don't normally come out in Iowa. It's, they're all white, mostly in Iowa. Young white voters voted for Barack Obama, and the Black men said he could win. He could win. The other reason he won is Barack Obama is one of the very few black people in America who has ever been loved by white people. He knew what it meant to be loved by white people. Very few black people in America have ever experienced that. So at the end, until we white people realize that this issue isn't for other people, Hmm. isn't Mm -hmm. for those people of color whom we need to help. Our coming to terms with us is for our own salvation, our own redemption from this lie, from this sin, from this ideology, from this idol which has crippled us as Christians until we see our own salvation at stake in all of this. And stop thinking this is for other people who we want to help. We're not going to get to a place where you mentioned that wonderful biblical narrative. The narrative on race in the Bible ends ends in Revelation, where we're all worshiping God together. And it says, in their own tongues, languages, tribes. They don't become some monolithic group. They are who they are in all their diversity, worshiping God in all their languages and tribes. That's the end. That's what we're going for, both as we can in our own context. But in Revelation, that's where this whole thing ends. All being created by God and all worshiping God at the end, in our glorious diversity. That's the theological vision. How do we apply that in terms of our citizenship when what's at stake now is a president who, a person who's always been a dictator his whole life, personal life, public life. He's always been a dictator. He's a white dictator. He's running on white nationalism. This isn't on the side for him. It's his principal campaign message. And that's what he's aiming at. I don't know if he'll win next time, but he knows the only way he can win. The only way he can win is by running on racism. That's what he's running on. So someone who is running on white nationalism, let's be clear. If Genesis is taken seriously, white nationalism is an offense to God. If we believe in Genesis 1.26, white nationalism is an offense to God, contrary to God's creating purposes. And if Christ was there, white nationalism is antichrist antichrist absolutely and until we talk like that we're not dealing with the image of god mm. the image of god also implies applies to misogyny whether we believe women are created in the image of god or not and people say they care about the me too movement all of that because they have daughters I care about it because I yeah, I, I, have a wife, I have a mom, I have sisters, I care about this because I have sons. And I want my sons not to fall into first the sexism, which lays a foundation for sexual harassment, which lays a foundation for sexual assault, and lays a foundation for a rape culture. I want my sons to be the kind of men that become nurturing men not toxic men. And because I care about my sons, I want to say, we either believe women are made in the image of God, or we don't. And finally, let's just say, we are all beloved of God. And without getting into a long conversation, which is in the book, I'll just say LGBTQ are all initials that stand for people beloved of God, period. So let's have that conversation as well.
1: The music you're listening to is provided by this podcast's very own William Matthews.
0: Reclaiming Jesus Now is brought to you by Sojourners, faith in action for social justice.
1: Podcast produced by Paul Woodhull from the District Productive Podcast Network and Chris Latondres.
0: To learn more about Jim's new book, visit us online at book.sojo.net. That's book.sojo.net. S-O-J-O dot net And if you like what you heard today please help us spark more conversations about the future of faith by telling a friend or leaving a quick review
1: That makes all the difference Thanks for listening
2: This is Jim Wallace God bless you